I'm Andrea Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Deborah Aldavit about her book, The Gates of Never. Deborah was born and raised in Nevada, but currently lives in Houston, Texas, with her husband and son. She has worked as a technical writer on con- contracts involving nuclear submarines, NASA, and computer manufacturing, which sounds quite amusing and interesting. Uh, Her poetry has received nominations for the Riesling, Dwarf Star, and Pushcart Awards, and her short fiction has appeared in Intergalactic Medicine Show, Compelling Science Fiction, and Pseudopod. For more about her work, including her Ada Earth novels and her poetry collection, The Gates of Never, please see her website, www.edda-earth.com. Hi, Deborah. Welcome to the show. Hi there. (laughs) <laughs> it's a pleasure having you here. It's a pleasure to be here. I haven't been on a podcast in quite some time, so this is very cool. <laughs> well, that's, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. So um, this is your first poetry po- collection, but you've published a number of fiction and novels and short stories before. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love if you would talk a bit about your path as a writer and how you got started with writing. Oh, it's it's a it's a long story. Um, I started writing when I was you know, basically in high school, and uh, I turned out a couple of stories here and there because you know Dragon Magazine was still a thing, and these long gone days, I sent them off. And being you know a sixteen year old, my stories probably sucked. They probably sucked very badly, but they sent me a very kind form, and I put that at the back of my head, and I was like, oh yes, at some point in my life, I'm going to be writing. And I wrote my first novel, which was incredibly terrible and very derivative when I was about 18. It was uh, my little summer project uh, between uh, high school and, and college. And it, I took a look at it a couple of months later, realized exactly how derivative, derivative of David Eddings it was. And when I lost the files on having moved from one computer to the other, it wasn't exactly a loss because I knew it was really bad. But then I had four years of undergrad in, in, in English where I was working my tail off. I was working uh, on stuff like the, the, the Variorum Hamlet project, which, you know, it, received, it, was a, it involved a lot of work and a lot of hours. And writing kind of got pushed to the back of everything because I was writing so many papers. And then I went on to grad school. And again, I was writing a lot of papers and I was teaching courses and everything like that. So my writing path wound up going, oddly enough, through RPGs because a lot of my writing from about the age of 26 to about the age of 30, 31 was done online in just RPG groups where I, I, I was the DM. I was creating the world. I was creating all, I was creating all the things. And that, that was teaching me how to do a lot of different narratives at once, how to cater to this audience or that audience, because I had to keep, I had to keep everybody entertained. Everybody was doing different things. So I had to keep everybody equally entertained. After that, uh, moved down here to Texas again, was, you know, trying to sort of cast about for, you know, ways in which I could be writing. And I had had my son, and there was very little time in the day. But then I wound up writing what wound up being, it's, it's, it's a little embarrassing, but it was a fan fiction. It was called a Spirit of Redemption. And yes, I'm Yettle. Um, and I wound up with 25,000 emails in my box about it. So it was fairly well received. I got a lot of, it was my first time really interacting with people who, or people who I'd never met before, but who became my fans. And I was like, oh, so this is, uh, I I actually can write. It's it's not just my ego. People actually seem to to like what I'm putting out there. 
And so I said, okay, well, I'm not going to be doing something in anybody, in anybody else's intellectual space anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to get my first book out there, come hell or high water, before I'm 40. And so I sent out my first book, which was uh, The Valkyrie from my Etta Earth series, to a, to a resounding amount of silence from publishers and, and, and agents. And I went, okay, well, I promised myself before I was 40, it's going to be out there. So I self-published that first trilogy. And that was just on Kindle. And it's gotten really nice reviews and people seem to enjoy it. I hope that uh, everybody who is interested in a world in which magic and science coexist, all the gods are real, and Ragnarok is coming, might check that out. But that brought me into the convention circuit, at least down here in Houston. And at my very first convention, I met Michelle Munzler. And hi, Michelle. Um, she was on a panel with me, and the poet, it was about speculative poetry. I'm like, well, I, okay, I don't know why I'm on this panel. I mean, I've certainly written poems that were inside of my various novels and inside of various things, but I've never written poetry just for the sake of poetry. And she said, amazingly, this stuff can sell. I don't, this is poetry for profit. I'm like, you can sell this professionally? Really? Well, I suppose I could try doing that. And the next thing you know, I had published my first thing formally. It was a poem in Starline. I was like, oh, okay, there can be success with this. People will buy this. Somebody will read this besides the editor. Okay, that, that's pretty cool. And then the next year after that, I had like 75 published poems. And I was like, okay, well, apparently I can do this thing. And occasionally I've gotten feedback from people who aren't the editor who've read it and gone, hey, I'd like to use this to teach my class that poetry doesn't have to be boring. I'm like, that's my whole goal. Poetry doesn't have to be boring. It does not have to be a haiku under glass that is whispered over by somebody who's wearing white gloves as they tell you exactly what it's supposed to mean. Poetry can be enjoyable. It can be a meaningful experience for everybody. It's not the 19th century anymore where we don't have to have it being stuffy and boring. And apparently people like that. So, um, here I am, somehow. <laughs> I'm <laughs> as confused about it as anybody else. Sometimes that just happens that way. You, you end up surprised by your own path as a writer. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, my husband keeps telling me, if, if you could go back in time and tell yourself four years ago that you'd have a poetry collection, that you're getting nominations for awards for poetry <laughs> – what would you tell? What would your past self say? And I said, my past self would be laughing, going, "Poetry? Me? Really?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I love this idea of poetry being fun, um, as opposed to only being this serious, sacred form. Because oh, I, I think yes. that's important too. Um, and um, could you talk a bit more about that and how you approach that in your own writing? Um. I started out, as I said, with a strong background in English. I studied medieval and Renaissance literature. And quite frankly, Chaucer has fart jokes in his work. He's got, he's got huge glaring gobs of things that are in there for fun. It was not, while it was being read to kings and queens and so on and so forth, it wasn't a high cultural artifact the way the 19th century has taught us that it must be and that, you know, the life of the poet is performance art in and of itself. And the 20th century made that very clear is that poetry is only for people who can possibly, you know, ha have, you know, years and years to devote to understanding just poetry. No, 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 it doesn't have to be that way. While I do have 
a background in a lot of different things. I've got a lot of different interests. I try to make everything very clear in a sense, because again, some of my background is as a technical writer. And that means that I prize clarity of meaning and, and communicating with the reader above pretty much everything else. I can be as tricky as you want me to be. I can fold hidden meanings in there. But, you know, if, if, the, if you don't give the audience a hand and you don't lead them at least into what you're trying to do, they're going to just give up and be bored and they'll, or only see the surface of your intention. So to me, it's important to communicate above all else to connect with the audience. And again, because when I, again, when I was teaching, I was teaching rhetoric. And so rhetoric is about establishing your ethos, your character. Sometimes it's an assumed character when you're doing a, a poem from, a, from a, the perspective of someone that you're not, from a character perspective. You've got logos. So there's, there's a logic or structure to the poem. And then there's the emotional appeal of pathos. So all three of those things are in everything that you do. And you might make one larger or smaller depending on how you want this to impact the reader, but you know, let's get the message across and use the tools that you have at your disposal to get it across. If that answers your question. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. So slow me down. If I start talking too fast, my, my students used to get this look in their eyes when I was, you know, <laughs> I was dictating or going for my, for my lecture notes and the, the, the smoke was coming up from the pencils and they said, do, do we need me to slow down? Yes, yes, yes. Please go. <laughs> um, I'm I'm following along okay. Um, okay. I, I suppose our podcast listeners can can bump it down to the slow speed if they need to <laughs> to, to keep up. Oh, that's what we call. <laughs> so, poetry being such a different form from fiction, do you approach the writing of poetry differently than you do fiction? Um, yes and no. Um, I'm sort of a signpost writer when I'm writing prose. I have individual images or scenes that I know I want to get to, and I have a starting place. And what happens to get me to those scenes in between is negotiable because the characters are going to tell me, the, the characters are going to tell me when I'm doing something dumb. Um, a favorite example of that was when I was writing Edda, and I wanted to eventually have this one character uh, wind up betraying the other characters and wind up in this underground movement that was going to be taking taking on some of the gods of the uh, of the Carthaginians, and he was going to join them as a bad guy. Well, some of the events that went on earlier that would embitter him didn't happen because he said, no, I would never be stupid enough to take my kids along with me on this trip. I would I, 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 look at my background. I'm smart. I'm a little bit paranoid. I would never do that. So they never were in a position where they were, you know, endangered. So he wound up going ahead and joining that same group later on, but as an undercover agent. And so because the motivation was different, I still got to my signpost scene, but the way we got there was different because prose is so much longer than most poetry, when, unless we're talking epics. Um, I still have my flashes, the, my, the images that I want to convey or the point that I want to make, but it's highly compressed as a, so I don't have to wait as long to get to my signpost. But I'm still writing to get to that point. And sometimes when you're writing in form in particular, you have to 
have a negotiation with the form because very often when I'm writing in form poetry, a sonnet, uh, a, uh, a sestina, something like that, where the rhyme or the word order or something like that is driving you along, sometimes the idea that I start with isn't where the poem winds up. But because the poem has influenced and shifted it, and it's a negotiation between me and the form, sometimes the finished product is better than what I thought it was going to be when I started. So that's fun. Yeah, yeah. The discovery uh, during the process of writing. Absolutely. We all need the element of surprise. And sometimes surprise comes from just how we negotiate the twists and turns of form. And surprise is a delightful thing. Yeah, that's one of the things I really love about poetry is how in such a small space you can have some very significant and meaningful surprises. Um, so let's talk about The Gates of Never. Um, how, how did this book come into being for you? Did you plan it out as you were writing the poems, or did it oh, kind no. of come together later? Um, basically, it was, it was more or less a collection of a lot of things that I wrote in my first couple of years, which sounds amazing. I've been doing this for three and a half years now. So coming up on four, right around four now, because 2015 was when I wrote my first, I am deliberately writing this to sell it poem. So we're right around four years now. So it was a collection of stuff I wrote during my first couple of years. And as I'm trying to sell this book, I'm also, you know, submitting some of these poems out to magazines. And so slowly I'm starting to accrue more sales out of stuff that was in the books. I, every time I had brought it in from a, another publisher, had rejected it. Well, let me go through and add in all the attribution notes of, of things that have sold while I'm waiting for this book to sell. So what I did is when you're putting together a collection which was not deliberately written together, it's almost like scrapbooking in a way, but more fun and involving less tape. So I try to tell a little story in each of the subsections or at least have a theme for each section. So at the beginning of the book, we've got the gates of sandstone, the gates of marble, we've got the gates of wood and the gates of steel and the gate of stars. And so each of them is sort of a little collection in and of itself. It's like having a miniature chapbook. So the gates of sandstone are predominantly things about very old mythology. So the Gates of Marble is about more recent mythology in the main. The Gate of Wood is more about fairy tales. The Gate of Steel is about more modern times, but still speculative. And the Gate of Stars just takes us out into straight up science fiction and science for the most part. So we get a, a tour of our solar system in that one. We get a little bit of a peek out at you know the science fiction world beyond just straight science poetry, so on and so forth. So I was trying loosely to group them by topic, but also to tie together at least the, the feeling within each one, within each subsection, because I wouldn't want to put a humorous poem right after a, you know, an elegy unless I wanted to deflate or contrast or something like that. It was, it was a lot of picking and choosing and trying to make sure that they blended together in a meaningful way. Yeah. It's a, it's a challenging process to try to figure out the order of poems. Um, I 
I think you've done a pretty good job by separating them into gates. And I find it interesting that it has that kind of evolutionary process from the past to the future. Oh, God, that's a, that's a preoccupation of mine, unfortunately. Uh, past and present and future being all connected and intertwined is a preoccupation of a lot of my work. So, Because I, I have a deep love of history, but I don't want to live there necessarily. And I have a great love of where we can go as a species together if we work at it. But again, that requires work and it requires being aware of the past. So everything I do tends to revolve around that theme. Yeah. So would you like to read one of the poems from your collection? Sure. Um, I have read this one before at conventions. I like to use this one as a introduction to the book. It is actually the first poem in the book. It is called Testament. It first appeared in Panoply. And here we go. The Buren's edge slants across my flesh, slicing through the skin like copper plates in Taglio, chiseling runes in the ink of my blood, staining his fingers black. The lines entangle and jam, weaving ascenders and descenders in tender embraces, each word opening me further, binding me, defining me. He writes me upside down and backwards so that I hardly know myself yet, but my hundred newly open mouths whisper secret meanings and offer atramentum kisses. He soothes my wounds with copper vitriol, making the words holy and incorruptible, incapable of fading into sepia. Yet, as he kisses me, our tongues meeting, the words spark white fire under my skin, the runes writhing into new configurations, just as true as the ones he placed there. I wrap myself around him, The words press against him, brand him, surge into his soul. I pour into him as he pours into me. I whisper his name against his ear and bind him as he bound me, press him as a leaf among my leaves. Mm. And I like to point out that that is a book pornography, (laughs) or at least librarian (laughs) pornography. Um, It is all technically about the process of printing early books in intaglio printing and the types of ink used, but it's also about meanings and how meanings shift after the writer has finished writing them in the minds of the people who have read them. And it's about people's love for writing and love for books and everything like that. So yeah, it's a bunch of different things, but and you can read it on different levels or you could just enjoy the fact that it's, you know, kind of passionate. Yeah. There's lots of different ways you can enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I can see why it works well as an introductory poem because it dives into that passion for books and also kind of introduces the reader to that kind of uh, intimate connection with this kind of surreal, strange world that you open up through the rest of the book. I like the way you put that. I didn't even think of that when I was, I, I just was going, when I was first trying to figure out what should be the first poem in the book, I went through most of the ones in that first section and I just could not decide. And finally I went, you know, this is the poem that I have loved the most of the ones I've written in the last year. And the heck with it. This is, that one's going there. It, it, it just, it, that's the, and that's the lead off. Close my eyes. That's the one it's going to be. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also ties into, um, as, as far as I can tell, one of the, the themes that pops up many times throughout the book is a sense of desire and 
intimacy mixed with danger. Um, oh, yeah. And so uh, can you talk a bit about uh, writing the dark side of love and intimacy in your poems? Wow. <laughs> um, you're finding stuff that I didn't even know was here. Um, interestingly, one of the last people who interviewed me about this asked me about why so many monsters. And I said, because monsters tell us just about as, just as much about humanity as humanity itself was usually willing to admit because they're the, the monsters are the dark side of our soul. And what we, what we find taboo defines us just as much as what we find acceptable. And some of that is there because I do deal with a lot with mythology and there are lots of monsters in mythology. And that was always about what a culture found taboo. And likewise, what we find taboo also exerts a tantalizing force on us most of the time. And so a lot of the poems I think probably do deal with the desire to be unified with someone to become whole with someone but there's a danger in that of being wiped away and effaced so it's always about walking that fine balance between intimacy and self-abnegation of, of just having yourself wiped out eaten as it would be consumed but also if you stand away from that entirely you run the risk of never being a part of anything. So there's that. I tend to like to go back to uh, Erickson's crises a lot. That's one of my touchstones. Um, I don't know if you're aware of it, but it's a sociological uh, looking at how people go through different, you know, Piaget talks about, you know, developmental stages, but Erickson talks about each stage in your life is dominated by essential crises. And for you, for young adults, it's intimacy versus isolation. And for older adults, it's generativity versus stagnation. And that's where a lot of these poems work around is if, if, you, if, you've, if you've managed to successfully negotiate the intimacy versus isolation, you have the opportunity to pursue generativity. But if you – each, each crisis point in your life, you have to still negotiate it. And there's always the possibility that you'll miss a turn and you might wind up in stagnation or aloneness or whatever. So, yeah, there, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff there. And I don't know if I'm answering your question very well, but that's what I've got. No, that's fascinating. I, um, that was uh, a, a bit more philosophical of an answer than I expected, <laughs> but it's beautiful. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you, no. You, 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 you pull my string and the professor comes out. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, um, well, let's um, pull the string a little bit more on the professorship <laughs> um, and talk a bit about how um, the fact that your your collection does draw, draw so heavily on myth and folklore from around the world. And um, I assume part of this is, is because this is what you've studied for so long, but, but what draws you to these sources and why reinterpret them? Um, and how do you also uh, pay respect to the original source material as you're writing? Ooh, that, that, th 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 those are big questions. Those are huge questions. Um, yeah, I've, I've been in love with mythology since I was about eight years old. I got a book of Greek mythology out of the library when I was very young, and I was hooked. And 
ironically, my son, because of the Percy Jackson books, has a similar love of mythology, but he's, you know, expanding into areas that I haven't even really touched. I mean, he, he, he's, he knows a lot more about Egyptian mythology than I do, which I'm like, this is wonderful. I'm not sure you've got it all correct, but it's wonderful. You have to also understand that Egyptian mythology changed a whole lot over time because different people came in into power and they would raise this particular god up for a little while and then you know then they'd be swept out of power and, and then they'd, they'd, a different god would have primacy and so mythology changed over time it wasn't you know just a set thing for them and he looks at me and goes yeah and i'm like okay you're 11 we'll talk about this again in about six or seven years um when, 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 when we're more capable of having a conversation as opposed to you going yeah but this this is the word for you know uh poop in a, or a poop magic in, in the Percy Jackson books. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. Okay, you're, you're 11. Um, so I have a deep love for it and I find it fascinating and I think it underpins so much of what we, how we think in the world today, even now, because people aren't conscious of it because it's been changed or made mutable over time. And it's been disguised and pulled in through other traditions. So it's all this big web that underpins our reality. It's just that most people aren't totally aware of it. So I like to go into it and sort of dig out little crystals of meaning from it and shine a light on it and go, isn't this something that you might recognize? I mean, bouncing over to my prose work. And when I was working on uh, the first book or the second Edda series, I was doing a lot of work on the Ro on various Roman traditions, and they had a tradition in which the spirits of the dead had to be appeased once a year by putting out little puppets of uh, uh, that represented each member of their family. They had to dress them up, and they had to basically hang them on the front porch, effectively, and they had to make food available to, and this was to keep the bad spirits at bay offer up these little sacrifices as you will and you can look at that and go oh those crazy romans or you can go oh my god that's halloween so the past is always with us I, I like to say the past and the future and the present are all connected that's why i dig so deep into mythology is because it's it's here it's part of us we just don't necessarily always recognize it as being part of us and paying respect to it when I encounter something that I haven't dealt with very much before, um, I try to get into it and understand it as deeply as I can. In the second poem and the third poem in the collection, uh, I deal a little bit with Chinese mythology and I also deal a little bit with Maori uh, mythology. I, in The Whispers on the Wind, I take uh, a deliberate look at Maori and how their tradition of, of, of putting marks on the face to represent someone's worth and the, the, the head hunting practice, which was done with incredible respect by that culture. It, it was having someone's head in your possession was a sign of having fought in battle. And it, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't crass. It was no way like that. And then you look at something else in the, the same poem. We look at the way the ancient Hebrews would preserve the head of a firstborn son as a terrapin. And then we look at modern traditions of how we, we, we deal with our dead and cremation as, as, as a comparison to both of these practices that were on other sides of the world. And it, it's all a form of mourning. It's all a form of 
dealing with the, one of the central realities of our lives. It doesn't matter where in the world you were when you lived. We all have to face it. So look at it that way, maybe. So as you write these poems, or poems in general, um, do you do you do research much before you begin a poem? Or do you mostly just kind of like draw on the knowledge you've developed over the years and kind of just go with the flow? Kind of depends on the poem. I mean, sometimes I'll sit down and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be writing poems today. Let me go look and see what's on live science today. And I look at live science and I go, oh, hey, we've got a probe coming in on this asteroid. Well, what do we know about this asteroid? What are we, what are we learning about this asteroid as we're going? And then a poem comes out of that or okay, well, I have, let's see, I haven't written one about this particular moon yet. I have a whole collection now of, of poems about the various moons of, of the various uh, planets in the, in the solar system. And sometimes I take a look at what the moon is like compared to its mythological name. And sometimes there's an inherent tension between Io was supposed to be a beautiful woman. I mean, she was, she was kidnapped by, by Zeus because she was beautiful and pristine and everything like that. And you look at Io, the actual moon, and it's this syphilitic looking thing with with volcanoes everywhere. And a poem that's not in this collection talks about uh, she, she, how she used to be pristine. And uh, if it hadn't been for Jupiter's you know, syphilitic touch, she would still be and things like that. And so sometimes it's as simple as that. And sometimes like uh, Enceladus, which is in this collection, it it came out of wanting to sort of look at different Chinese zodiacal things like tigers and because the moon Enceladus has what looks like a tiger claw mark going down the southernmost uh, hemisphere. And I wanted to look at the zodiacal dragon and things like that. And then it got mixed in with some of the Greek mythology about who Enceladus originally was. And, that, and then its position in, in Saturn's orbit and how eventually the orbital pressures will cause it to decay into the rings. And it will – so if, if life exists on that, it has a very short shelf life. If it's going to make itself known to the universe, if it's going to be born out of – ice and cold and everything else that's go going on on that moon, it's got to happen before the raw gravity tears it apart and reduces it into just a million chunks of ice. And that makes for a wonderful poem and all the juxtapositions. And I really like that one. <laughs> well, would you like to uh, read another poem from the collection? Maybe that one? Sure. That one's, on the, again, a little bit on the longer side. Um, there we go. Enceladus. Against the face of night, a white moon hoves into view, a hostage bound and fevered by a titan's gravitic caress. Responding to him, trammeled by a fellow captive's jealous chains, her inner ice melts yielding to the sweet torment of gravity's exquisite duress, bending and quivering, buckling and shivering. Four parallel scars rake down her belly, left by a celestial tiger's claws. She bleeds ice mist in torrents trailing veils of crane down behind her, shattered wings. She wraps herself in her mist, pressing snow to her breast to conceal her ravaged, pockmarked skin, bleeds out her essence to the void, heedless in her ecstasy, leaving a trail of frozen tears behind. Those feathers that do return to her as she's slowly devoured by her lover's ungentle embrace, 
fall back to her skin like knives of cold stone. Self-destroying, self-creating, blinded by her rapture, she whirls around her beloved, entranced. While within her laboring core, dragons struggle to birth themselves through the Caesarean cuts left by the tiger's surgical claws, strive to shatter the shell of their mother, their ice-white egg. The heat within her heart that engendered them will, in time, spell their dissolution when she gives herself up to her lover entirely, dissolves herself, and spreads out as a final shimmering ring of transitory ice. And so, with each pass of the orbital dance, the universe pauses, waiting to see what kind of fabulous monsters happen. really like that one. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> I like that one, too. <laughs> I believe that one originally appeared in Paulo Texas. I should probably point that out. That is a wonderful magazine. So um, I just love the way um, how poetry comes alive when it's read. Um, oh, yes. It has a completely different texture than when you catch it on the page. And um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you participate in readings fairly often. Um, do you, how do you prepare yourself to give a reading of a poem? Um, generally speaking, I treat it the way I did um, way, way, way back in the day. Uh, I was also a theater minor. And... Um, we did interpretations. And also back in high school, I was very, very briefly on the debate team, again, but only doing interpretations where at that point in time, you had to memorize them. And I usually had about a day in which to memorize them, which was really fun. Um, but I try to make sure that I've gone over it a couple of times, which is why I'm really pleased that you've given me the option to read ones that I, that they haven't just stuck me on the spot with ones I haven't read out loud before. <laughs> so, um, I don't go so far these days as to mark them up, but with stuff that I isn't my own, I would, you know, highlight, I would print them out. I'd highlight them and I'd, you know, make little diacritical marks on say, we're going to be going up for emphasis here, or we're going to highlight this word here. Cause I really want to hit and pause on that one or something like that. So it is a performance. It is a performance art. And I know that for some people I speak too quickly when I'm reading poetry, but I like to read in a natural voice. I know that there's a tendency among like some spoken word things where they have a particular, I've actually read a study on it where they said there is a particular tone and inflectional pattern in some spoken word groups where it's almost verges on dialect formation because everybody, everybody, somebody heard somebody do it that way and they've all picked it up from each other. So that's pretty fascinating. But I like when I'm reading my poetry to keep it in the flow that somebody would hear someone naturally speaking it because I don't want to add in extraneous pauses. I don't want to add in anything that would make it feel halting or unfamiliar or artificial to someone. Cause I don't want to raise that barrier. Poetry has got enough barriers for the average audience as it is for starters. We're calling it poetry and everybody in high school has been inoculated and given, given this allergic reaction to poetry because we've had generations of teachers that have done the whole, oh, this is a sonnet and this is what it's supposed to work. And this is exactly, th these are exactly the puns that Shakespeare intended for you to get. 
and this is what the, this is what our footnotes in our edition are telling you to tell you. And uh, yeah, so you understand that now? We're going to have a test on that tomorrow. It, because poetry has become this intimidating construct, I want to remove barriers. I want to make sure that when I read something, that there's flow, that there's rhythm, and that I entice the audience a little bit. Yeah, I love that. And um, it reminds me of uh, some some discussion I've seen online of the idea of bringing living poets into the classroom. So it's not just these guys who've been... I would love to be able to do that. Right? <laughs> because it uh, connects you more with the, the poet poetry being alive now instead of something that's been yeah dead. i mean again so so we, we have i have to give all respect to people who are out there teaching right now because it, it it's a war zone they, they all know it and and absolutely but we also don't do a good service to poetry in our schools because of just the way it's taught i mean it took until, you know, I was in my senior year for there to be discussion of poetry. Here are, here are the tools by which you can start to understand poetry. And there, there, there are puns in it. And here are, the, here are the tools put into your inexpert hands. Start hacking away at it to find meaning. But at the same time, that teacher, I loved him very much. He was a good teacher. He had a book and our book had two story, had two short stories at the beginning. And one was, I, I can remember it to this day, it was the, the deadliest game. And it's the story of how, you know, somebody is on an island and they're being hunted by the people who own the island and they're being, because they wanted better and better prey than a tiger. And what better prey is there than man himself? Yeah. And the second story, I can't even tell you what it was about. I can't tell you the title. I can't tell you the author. I can tell you nothing about it 20 to 25 years later because the one that stuck out to me was the deadliest game. And we all sat there, we read them, and my teacher said, so which of these was the better story? And we all looked at each other because we could tell this was about to be a trick question, that there was clearly a right answer and a wrong answer. And most of us said, the deadliest game? No, that's not the right answer. It's the other one. The, the, the deadliest game is just trash, pulp fiction. It's, it, it, it's, it's not a good story at all. This one over here, this one was better because it was more subtle and things didn't happen in it at all. And 25 years later, I can tell you which one was which. So you tell me, what's the better story? What's the better poem? The one that moves you and that you remember 25 years later or the one that somebody else told you was the better story? And that, 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 that's what's been a lot of my experience is that this, the poem that I think is in, in poems, you, you send out five, three or five at a time to an editor. And I go, well, I like that one. I like that one. I'm throwing that one in because I wrote it and I don't know. I don't like it very much, but we need, we need another poem. And we're throwing that one in. We're throwing that one in. Off they go. The ones I like the best don't sell immediately. The ones I don't think are very good sell. I'm like, wait, what, what? Because somebody liked them. It meant something to them. It had meaning for them. And I'm like, okay, it's, it's, a, it's this new experience for me because, by gosh golly, originally I was told that there were obvious ways in which you could tell that something was better. There's not. There's only what people like. Yeah, funny how that works. <laughs> Imagine that. It's all a matter of taste. <laughs> so, um what are you working on now and what can uh, the world maybe hope to see from you <laughs> in, the future, in the future? Well, um, 
I just uh, sold a poem to Asimov, so I'm very proud of that. And that will be appearing sometime next year. Um, I am working on a variety of short stories. I need to get back to work on my Edda books at some point in the future. Now that life seems to be calming down, maybe I'll be able to do that. I'm preparing another collection to go out, hopefully, for uh, editors' eyes in the not-too-distant future. I've got another chapbook out making the rounds. Um, so I've got pretty much all the balls in the air that you can possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. So to wrap up, uh, would you like to share something you've read recently or some sort of media you're cons- you've consumed, something you're loving or, and or finding inspiring right now? Mm, wow. Honestly, last week or two, I put my nose back into my Dune books because I hadn't, uh, I'd, I mostly have reread like uh, Chapter House in the past couple of years, but I was like, you know what? Let me go back to the beginning and start from the first book again. And one of the things I always have liked about Herbert's work is, well, first of all, that he had this incredible work ethic and that he always said that he saw no qualitative difference on days in which he felt inspired to write and days in which he, you know, sat down and gritted out his 20 pages and the man worked. And, the other thing that I'm finding on, and I have found perennially with his work is that each time I read it, I find something else in it because I've become a different person since the last time I read it. So it meant something different to me in my 20s when it was a struggle to get through the various books. And in my 30s, I was going, oh, I think I know what he's getting at. And now in my 40s, I'm like, I'm still not sure I know what he's getting at with some of these elusive phrases but he was the absolute master of making the audience work to understand or to come up with their own answers. And that's not me because, again, I like clarity, but I admire watching somebody else do it because I like fencing with that long-gone mind. I, I like trying to find out what, what, what other thing he had up his sleeve, what it really meant. So it's mentally very engaging for me, and I enjoy that. Great. Yeah, Dune is one of my favorite books, so that's a lovely recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thank you so much for being on the show, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do so. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with you. It's my pleasure. Okay, so before I close out, I would like to take a quick moment to quickly talk about Shuffle. Shuffle is a new ad-free social media network designed around engaging conversation, which is accomplished through detailed categorization um, that allows you to dive into things that you're passionate about. I joined the community a few months ago and have had a blast talking about writing and movies and games and all kinds of things. Um, For the moment, Shuffle is by invite only. However, for you, our listeners, we are able to offer an invite link. So the link is as follows, www.shuffle.do slash nbn slash join. And I will be sure to put the link in our show notes as well. Um, and if you join up, I hope that I will get an opportunity to talk chat with you about this episode and all other sorts of literary arts and other things as well. And that's it. This is New Books and Poetry, a podcast of the New Books Network. Thank you, everybody listening, and have a good one. 